I've been set free. But you Galatians, and if you've been following along in the chapters before, you'll see they've been flirting with the law. Someone has come in and told them, Jesus, yes, his death and resurrection, yes, but you need something more. You need the works of the law. You need the outward signs of looking like you're Jewish. I don't think uh, Paul, uh, I don't think the false teachers are telling uh, the Galatians that they have to follow the whole law. Because Paul, a little bit later in the reading that we saw this morning, points out that if you have a bit of the law, you've got to have the whole of the law. But I think they're coming in and they're saying, you've got to look at least like you belong. You've got to have circumcision. You've got to have the festivals. You've got to have the dietary rules. You've got to have the outward things that are there. But Paul has said that as soon as you add to grace, as soon as you add to a free gift, any human effort, you destroy it. Some of us are dads today. Uh, maybe you'll get Father's Day presents. Are you going to pull out the wallet? Well, you probably did pay for them anyway in some ways. Um, but that's the thing. When it's a free gift, if you then want to pay for it, you, you destroy its freedom, don't you? Grace is like a vacuum of works. And as soon as you let even just a little bit of air into a vacuum, you no longer have a vacuum, do you? And as soon as you smuggle even 1% of human effort into grace, it destroys it. Paul has been arguing with them for chapter after chapter after chapter. Do not add in works. Don't think that your human effort can make you right with God because God has done it all in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he comes to them a little bit further down in verse 21. And he says, if you want the law, I don't think you get the law. He says it in verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law is saying? He's accusing them of actually being ignorant. Now, I think what's actually happening is the false teachers have come in and they have claimed to be sons of Abraham. They've pointed to the Old Testament. They've pointed to their Jewish heritage. They've pointed to the covenant, the agreement that God made with his Old Testament people that was marked by circumcision. And here Paul starts to dismantle this particular argument. Because they've come in and said, we're Abraham's children. And he says, yes. But you know what? Abraham had two sons. Both of them, and this is implied, both of them were circumcised. You can read that in the Old Testament. Both Isaac and Ishmael received circumcision, but only one of these sons, only one was inherited, received the inheritance. And what was the difference between these children? Was it that the mothers were better than each? No. Was it that the one son was more virtuous than the other? No. Paul says the thing that made Isaac different from Ishmael was God's promise. 
Because Ishmael, and you can go through the detail of the argument, he says Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Now that could be in the natural kind of way, but you know, Paul often plays flesh off against spirit. So there's a bit of a negative spin here, a natural birth. And he represents Mount Sinai, the old covenant, the current Jerusalem, and slavery. Now, we look at it and go, oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) But that would have been shocking. Because for a Jewish person, they would have lined up behind Isaac. And here Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Look where it ends up. If you are under the law, you are in slavery. You were born into slavery. You are Hagar's child, not Sarah's child. But Isaac, he was born according to a promise that God made to Abraham. He represents the heavenly Jerusalem. He represents those who are born of God's spirit, not born according to the flesh. And it is Isaac and his descendants that will inherit the blessing. So fine, you can be part, you can be children of Abraham, but to be a true son of Abraham, to inherit the blessing that God promised, you need to be part of Isaac's spiritual line, which is characterized by faith in a promise, not obedience to the works of the law. You can be sons of Abraham, yes, but that happens through faith in a promise. And so he concludes in chapter 4 and he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We are people who live by faith, not by works of the law. And God has given us as he told us a little bit earlier, 4 verse 7, where he sent the Spirit in... 4 verse 6. God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who cries, Abba, Father. We have the Spirit, and the Spirit is the deposit, Paul says to the Corinthians, that guarantees the future hope. Paul says, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that... God's purpose was always that people are set right with him through faith in his promise. Not by works, not by legalistic obedience, but it is faith in a promise that sets us right. And that faith itself is a gift. It's an amazing thing that Paul says, and just hearing Lauren's testimony there about the the Muslim lady and the complete Lack of assurance. She hopes that maybe she might be. And so much of our world is like this. Whether they believe in God or they don't. Whether they have their own secular form of this is how I feel good about myself. Or this is how I feel that I am right before God. They are both built on works. They are both built on human effort and we can never get there. We can never get there. But the amazing thing here is Paul actually says that your birthright, your inheritance, 
is that that comes by God's promise graciously, freely, and is received by faith. But it's not just a future thing. We are called to freedom. So if you've got your Bibles there, we're going to spend most of our time really in the next couple of little paragraphs there at the start of chapter 5. What does Paul say? He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Last week, we looked at it just under different headings. We talked about being saved from and saved for something. Here, we talk about freedom. And we can think about freedom in both positive or negative terms. But I think mainly, when we think about freedom, we think about freedom in a negative way. Okay, Freedom as the casting off of restraint. And the Bible does have that especially when it involves casting off the wrong restraint, casting off the restraint of sin, casting off the restraint of the law, casting off the slavery that we have to evil spiritual forces. We are set free from these things. And the image of being freed out of slavery is significant. And Paul tells us that in Christ we have been Set free. What does that mean? What does it mean now that we have been set free? I used last week the image of uh, Jake Blues standing at the prison gate uh, with the world in front of him. And if you know the story of the Blues Brothers, uh, by the end of the movie, where is he? Exactly back where he started, back in jail. Uh, His freedom was very short-lived. And Paul here is saying to the Galatians that we have to make sure that we are not the same. We have to make sure that as Christ has set us free, that we live free. We need to make sure that we are not enslaved. So what does this mean? This means we have to actually embrace the fruit of the gospel. It is a reality that has happened, but we need to know it not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Because it's possible to be a Christian, Paul is telling us, but to live as slaves. And that's just just wrong on so many levels. On so many levels. Imagine you've been adopted into the royal household, but you still sleep at the gate with the beggars in the dust. But you have the right to sleep in the palace, to eat at the king's table, to go to the king and to address him directly. But still, you grovel in the dust. That's the kind of comparison that Paul is saying. We need to live with the gospel fruit, not just in our heads, but worked deeply into our hearts. We need to rest in his grace. What does that mean? It's a bit of pious Christian talk. But what it means is we need to actually work out that we don't need to add to Christ. And it sets us free. It means that he is our righteousness. I don't need to prove that I am worthy because Christ has 
proved himself worthy. I don't need to have a confidence in my own ability because I can have a confidence in him, his ability. Not that being self-confident is bad, but if everything rests upon me and my self-worth is derived from me, I know that I fail every single day. But the confidence I can have and the confidence before others and the confidence most importantly before God is because Christ has done it for me. He is my confidence. He is my assurance. I don't need to fear that all of a sudden God will change his mind. That all of a sudden I will step over the line one too many times and he'll say enough. I don't need to fear that because I'm accepted not by my performance, but by Christ's performance. So that actually sets me free from guilt and from shame. Because I can actually confront the sin and the failure in my own life without having to hide it because I'm not accepted because I'm a good person. I'm accepted because Christ is a perfect person who died and rose again in my place. Christ, Paul writes in chapter 3, became a curse for us. He took what we deserved. He was our substitute so that we might receive the promised blessing. We don't belong in God's family, but by grace, through faith, we are accepted. And the blessing that was promised to Abraham comes to us through Christ. And in him we can find rest for our souls. There's an old hymn, I've actually never sung this hymn, so I don't know how it goes, maybe some of you will know. But it's called Nothing Either Small or Great. Does anyone know this hymn? Nothing Either Small or Great. This is the fifth verse. Cast your deadly doing Down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Don't feel that you need to earn your righteousness. It has been given to you freely. And Paul, he warns them. He gives them the big warning there in verse 1 The second half, stand firm, he says then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Don't go back. You've been taken into the royal household. Don't go back to the dogs. You've been set free. Don't go live as a slave. You've been declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Don't go back to the prison of guilt and shame. That is what he's saying. Don't be yoked again in slavery. And then he gives us three reasons. He says, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, not that the act of circumcision, there's anything wrong with it, but if you think that that is what sets you right with God, he says, Christ will be of no value. As soon as you add to grace, you destroy it. Now, what do we add to grace? Some churches will preach. You've got to have a particular baptism. You've got to be regularly part of a sacramental ministry. 
You've got to be associated with the one true church, which is obviously their church. It's Trinity Church Brighton, isn't it? Isn't that how it works? Um, But we see it. You've got to have a particular religious experience. You've got to be on a certain number of rosters. You've got to read your Bible every day. As soon as we start smuggling stuff in, we actually destroy the gospel. It must be free. It must be pure. Paul warns them, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value. And then he goes on and he says, everyone who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to obey the whole law. And he's already told us, will anyone be declared righteous through obedience to the law? No one. The law brings judgment and brings us under curse. But Christ became a curse for us so that we might inherit the blessing. If you want a bit of the law, he says, you've got to have the whole of the law. And it doesn't work. And then he says this. He says, you who are trying to be justified or set right with God by the law through legalistic obedience have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. It's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? It's a bit freaky and people kind of go, but Cameron, I've been listening to you for a while and, and I know that you believe that once a Christian, always a Christian. Can Christians fall away? Let me give you an illustration. Okay, see this little bottle. You go home, it's sitting on the bench. Are you tempted to have a swig? Of course not. It's clearly identified as poison. You're not going to do it, okay? And then you go for a bit of a walk this afternoon, maybe with Dad, and you see this. Hazardous cliff. Do you think, if you've got any modicum of common sense, hey, I'm going to see how close to the edge I can get for that cliff, okay? Just because there is a sign there, it doesn't actually mean that anyone has walked off. The whole point of putting a sign there is to stop you walking off. And Paul here, I think, is saying to the Galatian Christians, what you are trying to do is completely incompatible with the gospel of grace. And if they are gods, and if the spirit is at work in their hearts, they will heed that warning and they will turn around, and they will come back. And Paul, a little bit later on, expresses that confidence. Verse 10, he says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. He's confident that they will hear the warning and they will stay back. They will see the warning and they will not drink. They will turn from the law and come back to grace. It is something that we have been called to do, called to be, and we must maintain it. We must stand firm. But not only that, freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ, is a life that forms our pattern. Because I've said we can talk about negative freedom, freedom from, but that's only one half. And the Bible also talks about freedom Now, I recognise I'm going to tap into one particular element within the congregation with this illustration. Okay? 
let's see if I can get this to work. Yes, good. Okay, who has been to the ballet? Okay, there was a time. Okay, and so here you are. And I don't know if you've seen these uh, these dancers, uh, but they are extraordinary. And uh, just the fact, if you've ever seen, maybe um, what's a, what's um, Mao's Last Dancer? If you've actually not seen the movie, it's well worth seeing. But you'll actually see extraordinary physicality, amazing uh, grace that is there, grace in action. The freedom to jump like this and still be smiling, you know, because that's the whole trick with ballet, isn't it? You've got to be smiling, uh, is the acceptance of the right restraints, isn't it? To have that freedom, she has actually restrained her freedom. She's actually accepted the right restraints. She's done what is necessary. She's done the hours and hours and hours of practice. Think about it. Have you seen someone, a pianist maybe, or a a violinist, and the extraordinary musical freedom that comes? Why? How? It comes through the acceptance of the discipline of the right restraints. Of the right restraints. Maybe a little bit more tough. Maybe you're into, um, into footy. Okay, uh, the guy or the girl who can literally take the mark, that is six foot, like, I don't know how they jump that high, uh, and you see them, and they jump, and they time it perfectly, and they catch, and they land without breaking a leg. Could you or I do that? Probably not. It takes the acceptance of the right restraints so that you can perform with freedom. It actually... We need to embrace what God has given us, what God has called us to. We are not set free just to do our own thing. We are called to live in relationship with him, and that is there. We're called to live in line with the nature that he has given us in Christ. There's no point for the fish to declare his freedom. Uh, A fish out of water is not free, is it? It's not free in line with its nature. It needs the restraint of the water to be truly free. We need the restraint of our relationship with God so that we might be truly free. Let me pull this out. There is an orientation that comes to us, that is given to us. I, I started with the illustration of Star Wars, and I don't know if you care about Star Wars or not, Uh, I don't know if you're looking forward to the 19th of December. I am. I'll be there. I'll be there. Okay? Uh, But as Christians, we are looking forward to a hope. It says, For through the Spirit, Galatians 5 verse 5, we await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. We are actually looking forward for the fulfillment of the promise that we have. Yes, we are righteous. We're looking forward to the expression of that relationship that is there. And the Spirit is at work in us, comforting us, encouraging us, sustaining us, reminding us that God is faithful. And we are looking forward to that moment when it will come in all its fullness. 
where we will not only just be known in name as sons and heirs, but we will inherit the full blessing. And Paul tells us that the Christian expression for this is eager awaiting, eager expectation. I get the sense of, you know, the little kid waiting for mum or dad to come home. They've been away for a while. They're sitting on the edge of the seat at the front door or they're waiting for the grandparents to arrive. There is just that excitement and that expectation that is there. You know, the build up to Christmas when you are about six, it could not come fast enough. And that is what we are given. But it's not just a future thing because the faith by which we hope, actually works itself out. Verse 6, he says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The marks of a true Christian are not what you do in the body. The marks of the true Christian is the faith expressing itself through love. The faith that is focused on that future hope. The faith that works itself out in the present. Because it is that relationship that we have with God that is given to us through the gift of the Spirit, that is made possible through the work of Christ. That is where we experience true freedom. That is where we become the people for which we were made to be. That is where the Christian is called to live. The future faith works itself out in love in the present. Now, my mum's generation had a phrase, I don't know, I haven't heard it very much recently, and it's normally used fairly disparagingly about Christians, that someone is so heavenly minded to be of absolutely no earthly use. Have you heard that? C.S. Lewis has a beautiful answer to it. Let me read it to you from Mere Christianity. That if you read history, you'll find the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Paul tells us that our life of freedom is a life of anticipation and action. That as we look forward to the wonderful blessing that is ours in Christ, as we anticipate this blessing, as our faith is fixed on what has been guaranteed us by the gift of the Spirit, so that works itself out in the here and the now in love. Because we have a Father who promises us blessing. And by faith, we are his children. We are heirs of that blessing. And he calls us to go into this world as his sons and daughters, to bless as he blessed us. Not to earn his favour, but because by grace we are part of his family looking for opportunities to share his grace in word and in deed. I just want to conclude. You notice I put my last point in brackets. 
We're not going to get to it. You can come and talk to it later if you want to know about emasculation and all that kind of stuff that Paul talks about. But I think it's more important that we actually just end focusing on this. Think about your life. Think about the hope to which you have been called. The guaranteed promise of inheritance that we looked at last week. You see it there in verse 7. You are no longer a slave. You are God's child. Since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Think about the privilege that is that. And that is guaranteed. And as we have a heavenly father who delights to bless, so he calls us to bless. We'll see in a chapter or so, 6 verse 10, that he tells us to do good to all people, to seek to bless everyone. When I thought about this, what gets in the way? Busyness. No time, I can't stop. I've got lots of things to do. And so I walk past opportunities to bless others again and again and again. Do I have to make margins in my diary that I don't just butt things up? I'm going to do this, 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 this. I need to allow time that I can actually bless others. I need to see people as people not projects. Think about your world. What opportunities has God given you to share his blessing with others? To speak as the students have all around university campuses, to tell of the blessing that can be theirs, but also to show that as that faith works itself out in love in the little ways in the insignificant acts that make a difference because they show that we have a God who delights to bless. We're going to talk more about this as we go on, but let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see the freedom that your grace has called us into the wonderful realm of our relationship with you. And that as we live in you, as your sons and daughters, as your spirit is at work in us, so that we might bless as you have blessed us, that we might more and more bear the family resemblance, that we might show your love as faith works itself out. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to opportunities, that we would be ambassadors of your grace, so that as you have blessed us, so through us you may also bless others. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.